Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. Welcome to this illuminating episode with Andreas Antonopoulos, one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and open blockchain experts. We connected via Twitter after Andreas tweeted what he describes as an intentionally provocative tweet that invited suggestions for podcasts he should appear on other than those hosted by white males in finance. Now, this call for diverse hosts came after his initial invitation more broadly for new suggestions without any specifications. But that invitation elicited an overwhelming number of white males in finance. And that led to the follow-up tweet on December 3rd, and I quote, Fantastic recommendations for podcasts. I think we've covered almost all the white male podcasters I should visit. How about some other shows? Not American, not investment finance, not men, not white. I can't change me, and in parentheses he says, I'm many of the above, but we can change the other side, end quote. So someone tagged me in the comments I think it was Shannon Grinnell. Thanks, Shannon. And I was delighted to see someone of Andreas's caliber and esteem in the crypto ecosystem attempting to widen the proverbial tent and being intentionally inclusive of other voices within the community. But sadly, the comments to the tweet immediately turned into a backlash firestorm that revealed some very disturbing realities about race and gender in crypto and in the tech world more broadly. I'm eager to share this episode and in particular to get your feedback on this authentic and thought-provoking discussion about inclusion, meritocracy, and what Andreas describes as his experience with mediocrity. Additionally, Andreas explains what Bitcoin is, the origins of the novel system that supports it, and the most interesting aspect of blockchain systems. And it's not what you think. We talk other uses for blockchain-based systems like the tokenization of real-world assets, We talk Bitcoin's dominance and why public permissionless systems like Bitcoin will be most impactful and democratizing for the other 6 billion people, not those who are already well-resourced within the existing financial and property status quo. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Enjoy. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Andreas Antonopoulos to Tech Intersect. He's a best-selling author, speaker, educator, and one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and blockchain experts. And one of his most endearing qualities from my point of view, however, is his interest in and commitment to the social impact and community-based aspects of blockchain technology and its application as the people's money. Andreas, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Tanya. So I um, am just deliriously excited to speak with you today. I have a great deal of respect for all that you do and mean for the space. And so it really is um, a great honor to have you on to have this discussion. And at the outset, I want to level set a bit. So some listeners will have a deep um, knowledge of cryptocurrencies. Others will be hearing about it for the first time. And the episode isn't really intended to be a primer. You have a, a, a a ton of rich resources. There's a lot of resources out there if you need the 101 crypto, Bitcoin, or blockchain version. But I do want to have a working definition at a high level that we can all coalesce around in this moment. So at a high level, how do you describe blockchain and Bitcoin specifically as the first application of blockchain technology? So Bitcoin is a system of money and payments that exists on the internet uh, and only on the internet and is a novel application of a number of existing technologies or pre-existing technologies put together in a, in a very interesting way that allows people to collaborate uh, across a network uh, such as the internet in order to build uh, a trusted system where a set of rules apply that uh, no one can change without everybody else agreeing to. And 
the obvious application of such a system is money. Uh, now, the, the, the popular term for this system is blockchain, but blockchain is really uh, one aspect of it, which is the database or the artifact that's created. The really interesting aspect of it, in my opinion, is, is what we call consensus, which is the mechanism by which people agree on a trusted set of rules and then enforce those rules in such a way that no one can take over and change the rules without everybody's consent. Um, and a system like that is, is very powerful. Uh, when you can do that across a network where the participants don't have to have any pre-existing arrangement or pre-existing trust or relationship, and they can still trust that they can uh, engage in some interaction or transaction by trusting the rules rather than each other, uh, that creates some powerful opportunities. And the most obvious powerful opportunity there is to create money to create a payment system where you can do financial transactions without needed uh, trusted intermediary to ensure that you don't get ripped off um, because you know that the rules will be enforced by the system in a neutral way. It's a very powerful idea. Um, it's also a very dissonant idea because um, our very understanding of what money is and how it works is, is almost so tightly wrapped with the idea of a trusted intermediary or um, a system of oversight or regulation, usually the government, uh, that we can't even any longer conceive of, of money as being separate of that or even trust as being separate uh, of the need of some authority of trust. So it, it, it challenges a lot of our views because it replaces authority uh, with a system of software rules and a network. That's excellent. And I often hear, this is a really important point and one that I hope to dispel, and, and you've um, reached out without even knowing it to to really tee it up. Oftentimes people talk about blockchain and distributed ledger technology as being trustless. And my understanding has always been, and in, in what you um, have just stated, is that it's not an absence of trust. It's the removal of these otherwise trusted intermediaries extracting a premium for the assistance to connect two parties. Uh, so yes. it's a trust in the code. It's Lex Cryptographica. It's not the absence of trust, but a different way to come to consensus and to trust and rely on the information that is conveyed. Is that accurate? Yes. And I, I have a couple of ways of conveying that. Uh, there's another common misconception, which is the idea that uh, Bitcoin and blockchain systems are not regulated. Um, when in fact they are the most regulated system of money and transaction-based system that we have in the world. The difference is they're not regulated by committees, they're regulated by um, software algorithms, and those algorithms cannot be changed without everyone's consent. And, and that's a very powerful idea. Um, the idea that they're very regulated because you know exactly how the rules are going to work. Um, there's no gray area here. There's no the Federal Reserve Wednesday meeting decided that the interest rate changed. There's no uh, the bank decided that you shouldn't make this payment. There's no um, none of that. In fact, we know exactly how the system will work, perhaps years, maybe even decades in advance, because the rules are already set out and are, are followed exactly and are very, very, very difficult to change. One simple slogan I use, or meme if you like, to explain that idea, uh, which is not my invention, but it's, it's something I think works very well here, is rules without rulers. Mm. Uh, and, and this is a system of very, very strict rules, uh, coupled with a complete absence of rulers. No one is in charge um, because everyone is. And so that's, a, that's really the powerful thing about this. It is regulated. It is trusted. But it's not trusted because you have to trust that the rulers who are in charge of it are benign or uh, properly motivated or properly overseen or accountable to a system of checks and balances or an electoral process or any of the other mechanisms we have for trust today. Instead, you you trust it because it makes it very difficult to to concentrate enough power to change the rules. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, 
or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Rules without rulers. That is a very powerful statement. I like that very much. So let's transition to when you think about why we, we might even need a system like this. Why was there uh, this moment, this tipping point, 2008, 2009, where Bitcoin really took hold? And, and it wasn't the first when we think of digital cash, digital money, but it seems to be the one that has endured and it really prompted the proliferation of um, a lot of copies and lookalikes. Why 2008, 2009? Why did the world need this system and this system of money? I honestly think it was a complete coincidence. I think what happened was that the, the person or people working on these technical ideas, which are not entirely novel. They're part of a, as you, as you hinted, they're part of a body of work that goes back to the early 70s um, and then most intensely to the early 90s, which is the emergence in the 70s of uh, some very sophisticated mechanisms of cryptography, uh, public key cryptography specifically, and, and various mathematical tools to, uh, to build secure systems that, that dominate the internet in our lives and, and secure systems everywhere. And then in the 90s, the idea that started being worked on that uh, one of the things you could do with such mathematical systems is build currency. And many people tried. Uh, Bitcoin had dozens of predecessors of digital currencies. It's not the first digital currency. It's not the only digital currency. In fact, most national currencies are digital currencies. It's the first decentralized uh, or very decentralized digital currency that survived. And I think the people who were working on it were probably working on it and had, had built a prototype and had come up with the idea. And then when the financial crisis started really unfolding, which, which was about September, October of 2008, uh, you know, with the Lehman brothers collapse and all of that, I think they saw an opportunity to maybe accelerate their plans a bit or an opportunity to attach uh, an idea that they'd already been working on to the perfect moment in history where that idea could really resonate. They may even have accelerated their plans or just simply pick that as a great opportunity. And we end up with the Genesis block message. Uh, if your audience doesn't know, there's a, there's a text message inside the first block of Bitcoin that was mined on January 3rd, 2009, that contains the headline from that day's London Times newspaper, Chancellor of the Exchequer on the brink of second bailout for banks. Um, and that message serves two purposes. One is um, to give us a point in time that shows that that block could not have been created before that headline existed. Kind of like when a... Um, someone's trying to videotape a message and they hold out and you hold up a newspaper so that you know that video was made on or after that date. Right. But there's a second, obviously political and much more subtle message hidden in there, which is that this is relevant, that this is related to what is happening. And a system of money without banks, a system of money without governments, solves both parts of that headline. The headline tells you one, that banks need a bailout, and two, that this person with a fancy title, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is basically the Secretary of Treasury in the British system, um, can and will bail out. Uh, right. and, and, and all three of those things are a problem. Um, the fact that banks need a bailout uh, and that someone has the ability to make that happen and then someone decides to make that happen. All, th all three of those are the root problem in the banking system. They represent a centralization of power that allows the traditional financial system to 
keep all the profits, but anytime they're at risk of making a serious loss, simply undo, uh, you know, oh, capitalism didn't really mean it. Um, capitalism, when things are going well, socialism, when they're not. <laughs> and uh, uh, you can't discharge your student loans or your personal loans in bankruptcy, but we can uh, at the tune of trillions of dollars. There's something wrong with that. Mm. There's, there's something wrong in the financial system, but there's also something wrong in the governance system, in the democracy that can do such a thing with so little consideration under the guise of emergency and, and then ensure that no consequences happen. Bitcoin is really about solving those three problems. It says, one, there is no trusted intermediary that has your money that would need a bailout. Right. Two, even if there was, there is no one who has the authority to do a bailout because no one's in control or pretending to be in control. And three, um, they couldn't physically do it anyway um, because they can't confiscate future earnings of people or debase the currency or create inflation or create debt in order to do a bailout like that. And so all three of those things find their answer in Bitcoin. Really powerful. And breaking it down in that way, really, you know, comparing that moment in time with where we are now with uh, democracy with a little d. And, you know, in some sense, we talk aspirationally about what that means until, as you, you know, note the, the my word's not yours, the shit hits the fan. And then we have the system underneath the system and we really get to see under the hood of how this really operates. And so that begs the question, is Bitcoin the only cryptographically secured asset that can function optimally in the way that you've described? Or do you envision a world where there are many cryptocurrencies uh, or a few will eventually dominate or will Bitcoin always be king? Those two ideas are not... Um mutually exclusive. I think we can have a future in which the uh, most robust, most secure, and also from a monetary perspective, most sound system of money dominates and is king. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a whole coterie, uh, perhaps even a very long tail uh, in, in a power law distribution. Other systems that for whatever reason perhaps not purely for rational monetary reasons, but for other reasons, uh, still still hold sway. It's the same reason why we still have fax machines, even though they're completely obsolete. It's the same right. reason why people still go for horse carriage rides around Central Park, even though, you know, you could take a Lime scooter. Um, and... <laughs> You know, just because something better comes along doesn't mean that the other thing goes away. And and also, just because there is a better thing doesn't mean that it can beat the thing that's up ahead that has a certain advantage of being an early starter. Right. So if you look at it purely from the perspective of money as, as one application and – even in that space, I think we're going to have a power law distribution. I think Bitcoin has already achieved uh, a very significant dominance. And, and this dominance isn't just monetary dominance or financial dominance, but also brand dominance and right. uh, literature dominance, research dominance, uh, software engineer dominance, user-based dominance, every single metric you count. And, and most of these metrics that matter to me have to do with people, not money, um, then those metrics uh, already show Bitcoin to have a significant uh, head start and, and very strong dominance in the space. It will be very difficult for something to unseat Bitcoin. You either need a, a massive change in the market uh, or a massive internal problem within Bitcoin to really tip that balance. Uh, it doesn't happen very often in markets that operate normally. The leaderboard, if you like, stays fairly static for long periods of time until something dramatic changes. You know, it's uh, it's Kodak, Fuji, and and uh, uh, Nikon um, 
is is the is the leaderboard in cameras and and remains so until one day Nokia suddenly shows up right. as the leaderboard and, right. and the only reason that happens is because the entire board has been flipped on its head. Uh, right. A phone company just took it, so that may happen, but it, but it's it, it takes a lot. Uh, so in the meantime, in monetary terms, Bitcoin I think uh, has the dominance, but. Um, there are other applications that are non-monetary, and there are also other motivations for people. So I expect we will see myriads of tokens that express various cultural desires that are non-monetary, uh, including reputation, popularity, social affinity, and association. Clubs, pop singers, football, geographies, uh, even companies. Mm-hmm. And there will also be, I think, other assets. Um, I think an interesting question is, can you have assets that aren't on the blockchain but are represented by tokens on the blockchain? And that's a really big question that's being explored right now. Yes, that's a really interesting area. Um, I had a episode two of this um, podcast was focused on what Spencer Dinwiddie from the, from the Nets um, pro-NBA player, and tokenizing his future earnings. And and that was a very interesting use case for this, quote-unquote, tokenization of real-world assets. Or mm-hmm. um, I think a really, probably, a, I'm, uh, have also taught real property. So the idea of the recordation of deeds and all things related to land is interesting uh, as well. Mm-hmm. All these various uses of non-fungible tokens. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on these uses beyond cryptocurrencies and, and their role in perhaps mass adoption uh, in the space? Well, the, the reason that this model works uh, particularly well for purely digital currencies is that the currency itself, the mechanism that secures the currency on the blockchain, the consensus rules, the system of rewards and punishments that uh, enforces that security, and the property rights, and the enforcement of those property rights all live on the same blockchain and interact cleanly, meaning that my Bitcoin is on the blockchain, the rules that secure my Bitcoin are on the blockchain, the rules that determine how it is issued are on the blockchain, its security is rewarded or, or punished by Bitcoin, and more importantly, my property rights as an owner of Bitcoin are enforced by the blockchain itself directly. Now, let's say I had um, a chunk of gold and then I had a token that represented that chunk of gold on the blockchain to take the, the, the simplest form of token-based asset. Uh, now the problem is that, yes, the token is on the blockchain and my property rights to the token are on the blockchain, but there's a physical asset out there and, and that might be a net player's future earnings. It might be the house down the street. It might be a plot of land or it might be a chunk of gold. doesn't matter. There's a thing out there and my ability to enforce my property rights on that are no longer on the blockchain. Right. Um, and the custody of that is also not on the blockchain. There is a custody. With Bitcoin, there is no custody. Um, ownership is a, a, an artifact of control over uh, cryptographic keys. If you have the keys, you own the thing, uh, if nobody else has the keys. And there, there's no deed or um, issue like that. The blockchain simply enforces your property rights by recognizing your ownership through control of these keys. Uh, it's almost like you have a, a PIN number to a bearer instrument. Right. And as long as you, you're the only one who has the PIN number, uh, you can use that PIN number to assert control and therefore assert ownership. And that ownership is guaranteed. That property right is preserved by the blockchain. Once the thing isn't on the blockchain, then you have a problem. And th- that problem in economic terms is really simple. It's called counterparty risk. Um, right. There is someone who does have custody. There is someone who can enforce or fail to enforce or abscond with that property or asset in the real world. So now that person or entity is a custodial, is is a third-party custody agent, if you like, or custodian. And you have the risk that they will either fail to recognize your property rights fail to enforce them, or simply run away with the asset. Uh, And once you introduce counterparty risk, the trust model that you had doesn't really work. Now, 
Does that mean that it, it's useless? Absolutely not, because it's still a hell of a lot better than the alternative. And what is the alternative? We still have these assets, and we still use tokens to represent them, paper deeds for houses and gold certificates for gold. At least the tokens or certificates in the blockchain model are properly tracked uh, encoded, protected, unforgeable, etc. Whereas in the real world, they're not. So you've reduced the problem compared to the traditional systems we have for tracking these assets. But it's still nowhere near the, the pure model, if you like, of a, what I call an intrinsic asset, which means an asset that lives on the blockchain itself. And, and that's kind of the, the ideal solution. Um, because then property rights, security, ownership, control, and the asset itself all coincide. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday. And as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive VIP first listen access as early as 48 hours before the public and exclusive subscriber content. We're talking worksheets and ebooks, curated links, media, topic specific content. Premium members are also invited to monthly free AMA chats with yours truly. And AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. We'll talk about the episodes, and I may also include a few special guests. Pro members receive all of that, plus AMA replay access. Advantage Evans membership adds substantial value to your listen, learn, and leverage podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. See what I did right there? Advantage of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now for as little as $5 per month. Cancel at any time. Find out how to get started at techintersectpodcast.com. And now, back to the conversation. And it's important for people to understand that there is this continuum from something that is pure public permissionless that may go all the way down to private permission. There may be reasons for all. And just because it's not pure public permissionless Bitcoin blockchain does not mean that it doesn't have some utility in making things better, faster, cheaper, more accessible, more transparent. And so we shouldn't throw all things away. It's not going to solve, it's not a panacea to solve all problems, but there are ways certainly to leverage the technology in order to increase liquidity there are a host of other reasons that one might think of using this technology that don't necessarily include the cryptocurrency space. So that's an important thing to uh, remember. And it, uh, it triggered, however. <laughs> however, I, however, and, and this is very important, I think. While there is a continuum of use cases, there is really um, a marginal improvements when you're looking at centralized, controlled, censored, uh, bordered uh, systems that, that use blockchains purely as a secure database versus the, the truly open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant, immutable, publicly verifiable, auditable blockchain that you see in Bitcoin. The, the application of the latter that I'm most interested in it has world-changing implications. It transforms the very nature of authority over money. Uh, it it uh, erases uh, artificial distinctions like borders, geographic borders and national borders. It, it is a pure internet form of money, but also a pure internet mechanism of trust. Right. And such a thing has never existed before. So the issue about these private blockchains, et cetera, that may have a 2 5% uh, impact on the bottom line of some giant corporation and may uh, make their operations a bit more transparent and a bit more open to scrutiny, and perhaps they decentralize themselves a bit and they're not one authority but five authorities competing. 
yes, there is some value there, mm. but it's boring. Uh, and the real problem is that the narrative you hear is the exact opposite. The narrative is there is no value mm. in the radical authority transforming open borderless public system. And all the value is created only in the systems that are endorsed, approved, but ultimately controlled by the traditional financial uh, and business <laughs> systems. So, and, right, exactly. If you measure the impact of these things in terms of how people with money treat them, then you are guaranteed to never see the disruptive technology because that disrupts the very practices that made those people rich in the first place. They have no interest in changing business. What they want is business as usual with a tiny bit of incremental innovation that will allow them to maintain the status quo. This is all about maintaining the status quo. And the whole point of, of, of Bitcoin and, and open blockchains is that it crushes the status quo. This is a radical departure from the uh, model of trust that has existed since the industrialization of Western societies. This is the information revolution in the system of trust to replace the industrial revolution system of trust of committees and hierarchies and oversight and accountability and things like that with a network-based algorithmic alternative. That is enormously disruptive. It's also very, very interesting. And it's the only thing that's, that's going to change the lives of billions rather than the lives of a very few who already had it all. Right, right. And I guess that's the concern of corporate currencies. The most f famous or infamous at this point is Libra and, and that project, which would take its ent an entire episode just to flesh all of that out. I bring it up to say that as we compare and contrast the function and the impact, not just the potential impact, but and from my point of view, I suspect yours as well, the actual impact that Bitcoin can and will does already make um, there. There's a pretty clear divide, and I found it very interesting. I'm interested in your take on you know when you have Meltem Demirs and and folks in front of Congress having the opportunity for the first time uh, to really distinguish all of the things Congress that you are concerned about with Libra. Bitcoin is not that. It was like um, this wonderful surprise that actually happened as a result of that. I was kind of right. nervous going into those hearings. But to have such strong advocacy in front of Congress for the first time saying those problems, not here. <laughs> um, so time will tell. Any thoughts about that? For, from one perspective, I think uh, what Libra proved really, really quickly is that it is not a permissionless system, meaning that it asked for permission and the answer was no. And the only reason Bitcoin exists is because it didn't ask for permission, because the answer would have been no. Right. And in fact, ha has been no um, very, very strongly for a decade. And um, Bitcoin isn't listening um, because it, it does not recognize the control of that no. The authority, sure, it exists. Congress has absolute authority to say no, but they don't have the ability to change uh, Bitcoin itself right. in order to make that happen. And so one of the funny things is that here we are uh, in front of Congress trying to explain this modern system of money to them as compared to Libra. And what they get is that this is disruptive to commerce. What they don't get is that their very authority itself is being disrupted by this and that their permission, their approval, their endorsement was neither requested nor needed for Bitcoin to continue to do what it does. Right. And that that is far more disruptive. While the regulators have been trying to figure out, should we regulate or shouldn't we regulate, Bitcoin continues with, a, with the... Uh, with the power of fact, with the power of it is happening right here, right now, and you can't stop it, and is completely unconcerned uh, by all of these conversations. What's radical about these technologies is that they don't require the approval or endorsement 
of these authorities. They simply are. And and even worse, or better, depending on how you look at it, right. uh, what, once invented, even if a single network is attacked and crushed, uh, which is very, very difficult to do, um, the idea itself can be recreated very, very rapidly and reborn and has already spawned three or four thousand competitors and uh, replicas and uh, and many pretenders all trying to find different ways of doing this. This is not going away. And, and, and that's the most important thing to realize. Cryptocurrency, blockchains, open public ledgers happened. They happened on January 3rd, 2009. The world changed. Whether the people in power see that, recognize that, or have realized that it's happening won't change a thing. Right. Whether they want it to happen or don't want it to happen. And I keep having these conversations where people say, well, should we have a system that does this? Should we allow people to transact without uh, control? Should we uh, allow people to have uh, the ability to do transactions globally without anyone being able to block them? And that is not a conversation worth having because that has already happened and will not ever unhappen. So therefore, the should or shouldn't is, is pointless. Right. The question is, okay, it's happened. Now what? How do, we, how do we adapt as a society to a world in which these things happen? It's almost like asking, should the internet exist? Right. It exists. Should nuclear weapons exist? They exist. We have to adapt as a society to the reality. And this reality and the system of mathematics that underpins it is not subject to uh, ex post facto review and veto. Powerful. Agreed. Agreed. So this um, is a nice segue into a final topic that I wanted to cover. And it's also the way that we connected on Twitter. Not too long ago, maybe it was a month, I can't quite recall. And for my listeners, I'll, I'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, mm-hmm. we were, I saw uh, one of your tweets, it was very innocuous and, and also delightfully inclusive. It was inviting people to share podcast suggestions of diverse hosts uh, beyond those that you'd already seen, all of the quote-unquote... Well, Go ahead. That was the second, that was the second tweet. So, well, put um, the background for it. I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, no, no, no problem. So the first tweet was just as innocuous. Um, I'm, I'm doing a series of interviews uh, and I wanted to make sure that uh, rather than just addressing the invitations I get, I, I get several hundred invitations per year, uh, almost a thousand invitations per year for interviews, events, and things like that. And so I have to carefully select which ones I respond to, but it's a very passive experience, meaning that people reach out to me if they think that they are likely to get an interview or they want to spend time talking to me. And I say yes uh, to a few. And I wanted to flip that around a bit and and see wh- what other uh, podcasts or shows would do people really enjoy that I should go and have a conversation about uh, Bitcoin and open blockchains. And so I, I sent that message out. Which are the shows you really like? Tell me, I, uh, you know, where should I go and do interviews? Who should I talk to about this technology? And I let that run for about, I think, about an hour. Mm-hmm. And I got 30 or 40 proposals. So 30 or 40 suggestions. Oh, you should go on this show. You should go on that show. You should go on the other show. Now, I looked at those proposals, and many of them were very interesting, and I certainly um, uh, arranged invitations and started posting them. But after about an hour of this, I noticed a pattern, Mm -hmm. a pattern we should all notice, but um, a a lot of people don't. And and that pattern was that more than 90% of the proposals I got were uh, middle-aged white males in finance. So a very specific demographic and nothing wrong with doing podcasts, uh, of course, with that demographic. Right. I've, done, I've done hundreds, hundreds of shows um, with people in finance, with people who are mostly white, mostly male, mostly my age. I am that demographic, you know, apart from the finance <laughs> side. I'm, I'm a computer nerd. Right. 
So I, I did get a bit annoyed because part of the reason I asked for proposals was so that I could break out of the, the bubble of the audience we have in crypto and expand that audience. I think it's really important that we start thinking about who really needs crypto in this world. And I've talked often about the idea that this technology is about the other six billion, mm. not the not the billion and a half people who have access to modern institutions, working democracies, um, you know, non-entirely corrupt banking and ample opportunity to credit, liquidity, investment, etc. Uh, but the other six billion, the ones who don't have one or in many cases, all of those things. And I'm not going to reach necessarily a broader audience if I keep talking to a single demographic. So I posted a rather provocative message and I said, great, those are fantastic suggestions. <laughs> Um, I think we've now covered the majority of white male finance-oriented dudes. How about some others? How about some that are not that? Right. Which was provocative, granted, and it was attention-grabbing because I wanted to make sure that the message was clear, right? That I wanted to expand the audience and make it more diverse. And part of that means uh, that demographic as well. And the backlash was furious, Fast and um, furious. Fast and furious. <laughs> but I achieved my goal. A hundred percent achieved my goal. So now I have, um, I probably received 50 or 60 invitations for interviews, podcasts, and shows. And one of the things I kept hearing from the people inviting me was, I didn't think my show was going to be big enough. I didn't think I was popular enough. I didn't think you were looking to talk to people like me. I didn't think I had good enough questions. Right. And the truth is, the, the people who actually did come with that kind of attitude or usually did the most work, the most preparation, asked the best questions, um, and really did bring me audiences uh, that were much, much different from the audiences I had before. So uh, while provocative and uh, attention-grabbing, and, and it was that on purpose, I 100% achieved my goal, which is I got to do, and I've, I've still got, I'm doing three or four interviews a day, even during the holidays, and I've got a full plate until February at least to do these interviews. So goal achieved. Uh, I, I heard some feelings. A lot of feathers were ruffled. Right. Um, a lot of people objected to my characterization and told me uh, a lot about their political views, including about their view of meritocracy, which I found quite surprising. That was surprising. And I also, um, although intellectually, I understand why you are using the term provocative, at least from my point of view. And for those who have not seen my artwork for this particular show, I'm a black woman in the space. I've achieved some level of success here, working hard as an educator, building a blockchain cryptocurrency and law program at my law school, you know, check off a lot of boxes. Um, and it, the way you even found your way here through our experience. But it's interesting to me to hear the second tweet in particular is provocative, but the response proves your point um, with, yeah. but it, it's just interesting um, how it, it, it may have, it should have come with a trigger warning. I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but you know, the point that I saw, and I remember making one comment, I said, I just, I can't go into a thousand tweets and responses. So I will leave this here and move on with my, um, yeah. my life, but, uh, and certainly Andreas can defend himself if he thinks he needs defending. And I certainly don't think he does, but it was not an either or, but an, and, and it's the, and mm -hmm. that was the inclusive right. part that expanded the tent, which is the entire point. If you're, if you, you know, you go back and you read and, and democratization and social impact, all of those things, as you said, go beyond the nuclear circle of folks who were working on this for decades to go and have an impact above and beyond that. Uh, if, yes, if you, would have, you would have thought that I rounded up all white male uh, finance podcasters and That's sent them to concentration camps right. um, that I um, said I will never speak to them again or right. anything like that. It, it was really quite uh, 
Uh, of course, I did name the specific demographic that had overwhelmingly dominated the the podcast space in our industry. Right, uh, a demographic to which I belong, and. You know, people saw it as an exclusionary comment, even though I absolutely continue to and have gone on all of those shows. In fact, if anything, I I only managed to move the needle from 90% those podcasts to 75% those podcasts. Right. It, it, it wasn't even barely reflective. The most interesting argument was that I should use a mechanism of meritocracy in order to decide my podcast, as if I don't, which of course I do. I have specific criteria that I use to decide if I'm going to accept an invitation or not. But this is a classic argument that you see, and it's it's called the pipeline argument, which is that, you know, if if more people like that were interested in the space, then they would get access to the space, which is absolutely untrue in so many ways. Um, But then the meritocracy argument And I did another series of tweets because uh, after 48 hours of fighting thousands of comments, not fighting, but responding to thousands of comments, I decided to address the elephant in the room and I wrote one about meritocracy. And I said, you know, the meritocracy argument is even more problematic if you really sit down and analyze it. You are suggesting that... Uh, a system that produces outcomes where 15% of the human population demographic dominates 95% of the audience voice and reach in our industry was produced by meritocracy. If you really believe this, that's even more problematic because what you're saying is that supremacy in outcomes, and I'm using that word even very specifically, has merit. Or was achieved meritoriously. Right. And and that is a much more toxic worldview. That means you believe that the people who achieve this deserve it. And I I am a big fan of meritocracy. I'm, I'm... almost in my 50s, and I'm, I'm still hoping that one day I will see a system of meritocracy somewhere uh, at any scale, because I haven't. Right. And instead, what I have seen, and, and this is the key to this, is that these outcomes are being produced by a system of affirmative action that produces mediocrity. Mm. And mediocrity is the dominance of the mediocre, mm. where... People like me get a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a sixth chance and a seventh chance and get a tiny little boost at every step through life until eventually the the mediocrist of us and and some good people rise to the top (laughs) and dominate 90% of of the audience. And it's, that's, that's not meritocracy. And I created a bit more of a stir with those comments. And in fact, one of the things that came out with those comments was at that point, people outed themselves. Right. They, they outed themselves as straight up uh, racial supremacists and even uh, sexists. Straight up. They, without apology, right? Right. Um, as in, read the studies about IQ differences between these demographics. Right. And like, uh, th- thank you. My Stormfront website subscription has expired, so I won't, <laughs> I won't be able to read those studies. Um, the the end result w- of this was, you know, it, it made me really think about what these interviews are really like because I've experienced this mediocrity, and I'll tell you, I have n- I have never seen as many mediocre interviews as when I am being approached by. Some middle-aged white dude from finance who comes to an interview completely unprepared, uh, has not prepared a single question, and presents himself as God's gift on earth, and then proceeds to completely botch the interview. And that never happens to me outside of that demographic. It never happened. No one is so out of touch and unself-aware as to not even do their job right. and think that it's okay. You know, I go to an interview, I have a job to do. I have something to do for the audience. The interview has something to do for the audience. We both have a job. I'm not doing them a favor. They're not doing me a favor, right? We're all engaging in, in a professional transaction and I take my job seriously, but 
meritocracy, if you've seen what I've seen. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so that was, uh, that was a fun experience. But in the end, I got what I wanted, um, which was a lot of great interviews. Outstanding. And I got what I wanted, which was a, a tremendous conversation with you and the ability to talk about it on the other side and kind of unpack it. Um, I'm very thankful for your advocacy and you being on the show for sure. And it's really important to, to note, you didn't do anyone who approached you a favor. You increased the tent. You increased the options. And through that very small gesture, it has exponential impact. And we'll see that hopefully in the decades to come. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the conversation and your insight on these topics. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sonia. Many thanks again to Andreas Antonopoulos for his generosity, authenticity, and insights on a range of topics in this episode. We covered at a high level what blockchain is and, as the first application of blockchain technology, what Bitcoin is and the history of digital cash that predates Bitcoin. We also covered how crypto is regulated by the code itself and how crypto protocols are, quote, rules without rulers. And also why Bitcoin has endured for over 10 years the difference between public systems like Bitcoin and private systems like Facebook's LibraCoin, and the role that cryptocurrencies will have for the other six billion. Finally, Andreas shared his insights on race, gender, and the myth of meritocracy. Hopefully this episode has provided much food for thought as we enter the second decade of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The future is definitely now. And we have the unique opportunity, particularly in the tech space, to create a better, more inclusive future by having the courage to challenge assumptions and be the change we seek in the world for tomorrow. Please leave a comment, then like and share with your networks. And let's get a conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Follow this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and please engage with me on social media. Thanks for listening. Until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.